Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farah Jassat. It's the eve of the American midterm elections and we've just had a fascinating evening of discussion and debate here in central London. Daniel is with me now. Tell us more about what we just heard. So we decided to stage a special Intelligence Squared event the day before the American midterms. The title was The Impeachment Election, Trump, Mueller and the Fight for America. We had a really stellar panel on our stage. So we had Timothy Snyder, the top uh, the top historian. We had Sarah Elliott of Republicans Overseas UK, and we had the top constitutional expert, Philip Bobbitt. And the discussion was chaired by Jonathan Freeland of The Guardian, who really is one of our favorite moderators to use. It was a great discussion. It got a bit heated at times, probably more than we expected, but it was good fun, and I hope our listeners will enjoy. Before we go straight to the debate, if you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps people find out about us and lets us know what you think. Thanks very much indeed. You mentioned these points on the globe where we've all come from, from Washington, from New York, Washington. You didn't mention Stoke Newington, where I've made the journey from uh, just this evening. Um, But wonderful for uh, us all to be here on the eve, as you absolutely rightly said, of a momentous um, election. And it is always said that this is the most important election of our lifetimes. Candidates in the United States almost always say that for every Uh, election any point of the cycle, but this time I think the claim has got more validity than it's had for a long while. It is, I think it's fair to say, people on both sides of this argument would agree that it is a referendum on the age of Donald Trump, on the Trump era, whether the last two years has been, I wrote this this weekend, a horror show to be repudiated or a model to be copied. And in some ways that's the... um, the, the judgment that people around the world will make watching this, these elections, uh, but also in the United States. And huge amounts at stake, uh, some of them hinted at in our title, the impeachment election, and we're going to come on to talk about that because, of course, if Democrats were to take the House of Representatives, that would be a possibility. Um, equally, uh, if the Senate was to change hands, all kinds of things would become impossible from the point of view of the administration and new and other things would become possible. So just uh, before we plunge into all of that, um, just to remind, and I'm sure I'm looking at a room full of almost geekily level experts I can see looking out, um, the, just to remind uh, people what's at stake. The entire House of Representatives, 435 seats are up for grabs. As always in the midterm elections, one-third of the Senate seats are up for grabs. This year, 
actually just slightly more than a third because of two special elections, so 35 seats in the Senate, and of course a whole slew of governorship races uh, around the country, among other things, and various propositions and referenda on the ballot in various states, so lots going on. There is, um, I was going to say, almost no point, uh, given the experience of 2016, in telling you what the polls have been uh, projecting and predicting, but for what it's worth, if you consult uh, 538, uh, that website, it would tell you that the Democrats have an 85% chance of taking the House, which the statisticians among you will know means the Republicans have a 15% chance of keeping the House. And meanwhile, the figures, amazingly, are almost the other way around. Republicans have an 85% chance of retaining their majority in the Senate, and that means Democrats have 15% chance. Now, people will remember that uh, this time two years ago, the Monday before the election, it, uh, Hillary Clinton had a 75% chance of uh, winning the presidency, and Donald Trump was only given 25% chance. And so we know how that worked out. So, uh, you know... Feel free to ignore those figures. The Democrats are trying to overturn uh, a current 23... Uh, well, a majority that means they need 23 seats in the House to win. Uh, and uh, at the moment, the, that figure, the you know, number of seats that are, in, are, are close, there's about 30 that the pollsters tell you are toss-ups. Could go either way. Um, but Democrats do lead in about 16 to 17 seats, according to polls. Why don't we start with you... Uh, Sarah, on two related questions. Firstly, what you think is going to happen tomorrow and what you think should happen tomorrow. And I know they're different things. That's Sarah. assuming. That's assuming. Um, well, I, I think, um, as you said before, this is a referendum on President Trump. And I think he has uh, probably outperformed a, what a lot of his critics thought he would do, including myself. Um, I have been very impressed with his administration. He has governed more conservatively than any Bush or, um, or a Romney presidency would have been. Uh, his tax cuts have reignited the engine of the American economy. Uh, I can rattle off really good statistics for you. Uh, he, the unemployment rate right now is 3.7%, the lowest it's, it's been in 50 years. He has the lowest unemployment rate for uh, uh, blacks and Hispanics at 6% and 4.8%. Uh, with his tax cuts, the first six months of this year, over a half a trillion dollars was reinvested in the United States economy. Uh, we haven't seen 4% uh, growth in 50 years. We are at 3.5% this last quarter, and we added 250,000 new jobs in October. Um, and the biggest defining economic figure is wage growth. Because wage growth is something that the bottom 10% has not seen in the last 20 years. And that was re that's really Trump's base. And we're seeing it now at 3.1%. The elites, or the global elites, have always had wage growth, around 15%. But now we're actually seeing the working middle class getting a boost. And this is key. And this is why this midterm election is so close. Uh, it's very hard to... Um, 
you know, say affirmatively, as Jonathan just said, because of polling. But my prediction is what I think will happen is that the United States Senate will remain in Republican hands and will gain at least two to three extra seats. Um, North Dakota is definitely in the Republican camp. I think Claire McCaskill of Missouri loses. Um, and I think Indiana also goes to Republicans. These are just two red of states uh, that Trump won uh, because there are 10 Senate seats that Trump won of which Democrats are defending themselves and it's just a real uphill battle for them. And quite frankly, the economy is amazing. We, we haven't seen anything like this in a long time and you have to remember that the, slug, the most sluggish economy we've had since post-war were the eight years of the Obama administration. So this is, this is a really big turning point, this um, election, this midterm. So um, with the House, however, I do think that the Democrats have the upper hand, and I say this because there are more uh, congressional seats in which Hillary won that have Republicans defending themselves in it, and these are suburban districts. And a lot of the Republicans in these suburban districts are actually uh, siding with Democrats on this election because they, the, the tax cuts just haven't quite won them over enough. They don't like the president's temperament and they don't like his stance on immigration. So I think that the Democrats will take, will win about 32 seats. It could range between 25 or 40, but I think around 32, which means they will have the control of the House. Now, what would I like to see happen? I actually We're think... We're going to take a wild guess. <laughs> I actually like this scenario. I actually think this is a good scenario. And I'll tell you why. Because it sets President Trump up to win re-election in 2020. He has a house in which will give him heck for two years, and he'll point fingers at the Democrats and say, you have not let me fulfill my agenda. You do not care about border security, of which polls about 80% of Americans care about border security. They, it's common sense, really. If you are a sovereign nation, you should have control over your borders. So he says this. And I think also the, the Democrats could actually miss out on an opportunity to really back some good infrastructure projects, which they really like. And if they do that, I think it makes the president more popular. So I think um, in the short term, it's painful, but I care more about the U.S. Senate because I care about judicial nominations and appointments. And this president has put in the record number of judicial appointments of any president who are more in line with Antonin Scalia, who's a contextualist or originalist um, type of reader of the Constitution, and that is what I prefer because I do not believe international law should be quoted in U.S. constitutional law. And so I, I, I actually am really excited about the U.S. Senate. I'm a huge fan of Mitch McConnell. I hope he stays, and there is nothing better than fundraising against Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Thank you. And um, let's put the same formulation of question to you, Tim. What you think will happen tomorrow and what you think should happen, what you'd like to see happen tomorrow. So I, I don't see the stakes of this election as being so much about policy, much as I agree that it's important. Um, I don't see the stakes as being even about Democrats or Republicans. And I don't believe in the idea of red or blue states. I do, however, believe in the idea of democracy. I believe that democracy is a very good thing in and of itself and that democracy requires that the mechanism of voting be quiet, be behind the scenes, and be functional. In other words, in a truly functioning democracy, 
voting itself should not be the issue. Voting should be the thing which we can take for granted. One of the legacies of American history, and also in the short term, one of the legacies of the Russian intervention in 2016, is a certain amount of uncertainty about that issue, voting itself. So in North Dakota, which was mentioned by Sarah, in North Dakota, a good deal of the North of Native American population has been disenfranchised according to rules which require that you have a residential address which the state recognizes. In the state of Texas, a good number of people have been de facto uh, removed from the rolls. And if you make a mistake in your appeal to get yourself back on the voting rolls, you can be convicted of a crime. In my home state of Ohio, if you do not vote, you, you, your name will be removed from the rolls, even though you're a citizen in good standing. In other words, you, if you buy a gun, you don't have to use it. If you buy a car, you don't have to drive it. But if you are registered to vote, your registration can be taken away from you if you don't exercise your right to vote. In the states of Kansas and Georgia, we have the very unusual situation that the Secretary of State, that is the person who's responsible for counting the votes, is also the Republican candidate for governor. In other words, the fox is in charge of the hen house. It so happens that these are the two men who are most associated with voter suppression in the United States of America. In Georgia, for example, uh, the Secretary of State has removed about 2 million people from the voting rolls, hundreds of thousands of them erroneously. Um, the, the candidate for governor of Kansas was the man picked by President Trump for his nationwide voter suppression effort. So these are, for me, the issues that matter. I would very much like for the will of the people of the United States to be accurately and transparently and smoothly represented in our elections. So for me, this is an election which is about future elections more than anything else. So if the question is, what would I like to see happen afterwards? What I would like to see is for voter suppression to lose. I would like to see voter suppression publicized and written about, and I would like for people to see that it is immoral and that it is inconsistent with the best traditions of the United States of America, regardless of what political party you support or which policies you support. That's the outcome that I would like to see, because I'm afraid that the stakes of this election are not really about red and blue, Democrat or Republican. The stakes of this election are about, in the broadest sense, whether the United States of America will become a democracy. Because after all, a democracy is something that you are always becoming. In the four ways of historical democratization, the 18th century, the American Revolution, Woodrow Wilson, the First World War, the Second World War, at the end of the Cold War, the United States of America was always at the forefront. It was always an imperfect democracy, but a democracy that each of those historical moments was moving forward. We cannot say that about the last 15 years of the history of the United States. We have become, usually at our own initiative, recently with a certain amount of help from Russia, less democratic in the last 15 years. Right, due to decisions of the Supreme Court and also due to experimentations at the level of the state. So I would like for us to become a more rather than a less democratic country. So I know you want to come in, and, we, and before we bring in Philip, you have, should have a chance to respond. Particularly, I want you to respond to what uh, Tim referred to as voter suppression, North Dakota, Native American voters being... You know, finding it difficult to vote, and the example he gave in Georgia with the Secretary of State is also a candidate for governor, and uh, 
large numbers of voters taken off the rolls. What can you say about that? Well, I, I would agree that I don't think if you should be Secretary of State and running for governor. I do think there's a conflict of interest there. I don't know of his history of taking two million people off the voter rolls. I, I don't know about that. But um, and in terms of... Um, it's just, it hasn't made headlines. I mean, it feels a bit conspiratorial. And it should have if it was the Democrats, if, if they were... But the other thing, what I would say about, I mean... It is in the headlines. I, I, to, to be honest with you, it's not mainstream thinking. So it's not reported on. It's not talked about that much. To be perfectly honest with you, I, I, I don't think it's... Um, I, I have not heard it of being a massive issue in the United States. I'm sorry. We're going to move on to the part of the big discussion tonight, which is contained in our title of an impeachment. But just before we get to that, and you're going to lead us on that, but can you just, I know you're not going to play political um, crystal ball gazer for us, and we're not going to ask you to do that, but what your preference would be, because we had a quite interesting and unexpected take from Sarah Elliott on the notion that actually it would be, could be quite good for Trump if there's a House of Representatives in Democrat hands to blame. Um, so what, what would you like to see happen tomorrow night? Well, let me just first say... Uh on the prediction point, uh, I uh, sat up all night during the Clinton-Trump uh, election. I was wrong. I was over here in London during the Brexit vote. I was wrong. Uh, and I'm a political junkie who really lives on this stuff. So I, I was reminded of a beautiful villanelle some of you may know by W.H. Auden. It begins, time will say nothing, but I told you so. Time only knows the price we have to pay. If I could tell you, I would let you know. <laughs> now, as to what I would like uh, to eventuate, uh, I, which I think is rather far-fetched, I would rather see the Congress in the hands of the Democrats. And it's not because I think Democrats are uniquely virtuous or because they have a program that I can rally around is a little sort of all over the map right now. It's because I think that the current occupant of the White House is such a threat to the success of the United States. I accept the many things that Sarah has said about the economy. I'm not sure how much credit to give to Donald Trump about that. But I rejoice at low unemployment rates, and I rejoice at wage growth. But the president has systematically tried to uh, undermine our alliances in Europe. He has created a very fanciful and dangerous crisis in North Korea. But as a constitutional lawyer, what distresses me the most is that he has attacked, whenever possible, the rule of law with his attacks on the judiciary, his incitement of violence against particular ethnic groups and against the press, his refusal to say that he would be bound by the result of the elections when he was a candidate, his cries, which were repeated just the other night, that his political opponent should be locked up, these are things that go to the very foundation of what uh, I believe this country and my country uh, have thrived on, and that is adherence to the rule of law, respect for law even when it constrains you, uh, a sense that the executive's first duty is to see that the laws are faithfully executed. 
beside which all the various policy things about which we may disagree really pale. So I, I would like to see a, uh, a Democratic Senate, uh, though I don't expect one. And I'd like to see a Democratic House, though I can only hope for one. Okay, on that point, in which Philip Bobbitt says to you, okay, the economy may be roaring and booming still. There's a threat to what America's meant to be in a society governed by laws, etc. I don't know what law he's broken, to be honest with you. Everything he's put forward has gone through the Supreme Court. He has not created a military coup. He has, um, he's repealed a lot of executive orders from his predecessor. Um, he's, I, I prefer a congressional uh, legislature-type activity rather than ex- executive order, but he's doing things because the Congress won't work with him. Um, he, I, I, I don't know how he has behaved as a fascist in the way that he has... The fact that he wouldn't agree or at least during the campaign, that, he, that uh, if he lost, would he um, concede? It's because he knew that the media was going to twist that and create a headline for him that was wrong, that would be biased. He has always gone up against the media. He's always gone up against his detractors. And as we know, Trump doesn't care. But in that instance, he was protecting himself from another attack. And you may not think he's, he's very book smart, but he is clever when it comes to marketing, when it comes to selling. And he, had a, he has an idea of America that was much more attractive than what she stood for, which was herself. And America, I think, is buying into that. But in terms of breaking any kind of law, uh, being a fascist... Um, and by the way, I would like to know where you think there's been Russian involvement, because quite frankly, the Mueller investigation was set up to track that. So you say that you cannot have a bipartisan system where, um, you know, to really look into these things, but that's why we have a special counsel. And quite frankly, nothing's come up, and over $20 million of taxpayer money has been spent. I just don't think point. there's anything um, well, we, there. Maybe, but maybe it leads naturally to this point of where we've got to. But anyway. Region. So let's, let's because you've teed that up nicely. The, the question I wanted to ask next was, in some ways people have billed this, as it says there, as the impeachment election for a very specific reason, which is it is the House of Representatives who are charged under the Constitution with uh, drawing up articles of impeachment. Nobody expected a Republican House to do that, so... It would require, this is the, runs the argument, a change of hands. Therefore, if the Democrats win the House tomorrow, suddenly that becomes a live question. They could draw up articles of impeachment against uh, the president. So you, Philip Bobbitt, have written on this recently. Again, that same formula I put to you, which is, do you think they would or do you think they will if they have the power to do it? But almost perhaps more importantly, should they? You know, are the grounds there? Is it a wise idea for Democrats, if they win the House of Representatives, to impeach Donald Trump. Why don't you kick us off on that? Well, the first thing to note, which I think perhaps most of you already know, is that impeachment is an indictment. And it requires only a majority vote of the House. I would be surprised if in the next uh, Congress, if the Democrats have a majority in the House, I'd be surprised if they did not impeach the President. If they don't, it will be because the findings of the Mueller report don't bear out grounds for conviction. Now, conviction is a very high bar in the Senate. Two-thirds of the Senate must vote to convict. Now, having said that, we don't know what the Mueller report 
has to, uh, has to say. And probably the most important aspect of the House and the vote tomorrow isn't about whether or not they would vote to impeach. It's whether or not they will be able to protect the findings of the Mueller report, whether they'll be able to pry it loose from a president who wanted to fire Mueller, something you neglected to mention to this audience, uh, from the president's lawyer, who has said that the findings will not be reported to the public because they'll be covered by executive privilege, that he would dispute this in the courts all the way to the Supreme Court. The issue really is whether or not we will find out what the Mueller report says. Where are you on this impeachment question? Because you gave us this, I thought, politically savvy but unexpected answer about the House could be useful for him, for Donald Trump, as a punch bag. Wouldn't impeachment perform a similar function for him? You know, we know from watching what we've seen him do in this campaign, he's brilliant at and places a great premium on mobilizing the base. What would mobilize this base more than, as you would put it, Nancy Pelosi and the rest of them trying to impeach Donald Trump? Wouldn't that be a gift for him in a way? Um, I, I suppose so. I think it would be a lot of waste of um, time and energy, and there are much more important things that face the country. <laughs> Quite frankly, it, I don't know, I, I think after two years of this investigation and all we have are, um, you know, side collateral of Paul Manafort and uh, Michael Cohen and we have nothing, no other proof. Isn't I, that because of what he yeah, said they have I'm, I'm very doubtful about that actually. And actually I'm very doubtful, it'll be interesting to see if they actually want to go forward with impeachment because impeachment does not play well with the American people. And that's why I'm not terribly concerned. Didn't stop Republicans the, doing it 20 years ago. Yeah, but it, it didn't help them either. And, 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 you know, Nancy Pelosi said she wanted to impeach, impeach Bush. And they say it, the Democrats say it every time. But they don't ever actually really do it. And it'll be interesting to see if they'll, if they'll actually go for it, to be honest with you. This is such a you. peculiar uh, summary. Democrats say they're going to, but they don't ever do it, which apparently offends you. The only impeachment in, uh, since uh, Richard Nixon has been the impeachment of Bill Clinton. But isn't the point not whether or not impeachment is politically popular? Shouldn't we try and say impeachment is a legal instrument when a constitutional crime has been committed? Now, I don't know if those crimes have been committed. How do you know that? I, well, I haven't seen anything yet. And after two years, there's no proof. To me, there's no proof. What I'm actually more interested in is the Fusion GPS being paid for by the Clinton campaign that then passed on to Christopher Steele that then did work with Russian operatives. That's what I want to see investigated. And then they collaborated with the FBI to get a FISA warrant over an American citizen. That's what I'm concerned about, and that's what democracy, that you want to talk about preserving democracy, that's what we we have to do there. Okay. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. 
and you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash intelligence. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Um, let's move on from the impeachment question to other things before we open out, which we will do in just a few minutes. Um, you made an interesting case, uh, if you like, for the Republicans, which was about the economy and how it's roaring along and doing very well. And yet, to the surprise of a lot of politics watchers, that isn't the case that Donald Trump has made in his closing days of the argument. In fact, he even addressed this yesterday and said that it can be boring to talk about the economy. It's doing well, but it's boring. His closing message has been about the caravan, this threat of, as he describes it, of migrants coming in. Uh, and it has been about um, the border, uh, and it's been this claim that Democrats pose a threat to law and order and security. He hasn't gone on jobs and wage growth, etc. Are you happy, are you comfortable with the themes that Donald Trump has been pushing in these last few days? Caravan, the final ad, which suggested that you know, there are all these marauding criminals and murderers who are going to come here, that Democrats want to open, throw open the borders... He didn't do what you just did. You talked to us about wage growth and the economy. He, he hasn't done, he that. Has done that. He's preferred he to say that. that these threatening foreign invaders are coming, about referring well, to refugees from war-torn Central America. He was elected to build that? a wall. He was elected to build a wall, and he is reminding people that his agenda isn't finished, and you need to elect Republicans so he can finish his agenda. Tim Snyder, what do you think of this, the sort of what the themes of the closing days of this campaign have been? I think it's and what lessons yeah. we would draw from it. I think, I, mean, I think it's very important to give Mr. Trump credit where credit is due. I think in certain ways he's an extremely gifted politician. And when it comes to this particular question of, of talking about immigrants versus talking about the economy, I think that's because he knows that it's very likely in 2020 he's not going to be able to run on the economy. Right? We all know, we're all grown-ups here, that 
as a president, you're basically you're lucky or unlucky when it comes to the economy. Barack Obama got lucky. Right now, Donald Trump is also getting lucky. In 2020, it's unlikely that the American economy is going to look like it looks right now, and I think he's wise enough to be aware of this. He's trying to find the issues that he can run on regardless of what the facts of the matter are in the United States. If the, if the Republicans were concerned about whether you call it border security or whether you call it immigration, they could pass a law, right? They've had two years with a majority in both houses and the president. They could pass a law. There's a reason why they don't pass a law, which is that they like to have this as the issue which will always be present. This is how Mr. Trump works. He doesn't pass legislation, with a few exceptions, like corporate tax cuts, which were mentioned. He likes to find issues which will always be there. So I actually take this as a sign of his political craftiness. I think it's unlikely, and this is being recorded so we can check, it's unlikely the U.S. economy is going to look like this in two years, and I think he's perfectly well aware of that. I'm wondering what you make. I know you're not a sort of partisan in this fight, but given the landscape, as you sketched out, in which this person poses a threat to... um, uh, the rule of law to America's own, to the Constitution, really. You didn't even talk about America's alliances around the world, its standing. How on earth are Democrats still at this point where it's neck and neck, given the sort of parlous state of this presidency as you've described it? You know, I, surely they should be 25 points ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yes, well, uh, the appalling thing about 2016 was uh, how someone uh, whom I believe to be as uh, talented and as experienced as... Uh, Secretary Clinton could lose, much less lose to uh, Donald Trump. And I think it speaks volumes about, about our democracy, about marketing and about uh, uh, what sells and how people can be portrayed and traduced. I, I believe in the democratic uh, process, but that doesn't mean I think it's, it operates flawlessly. I just happen to think it's better than anything else we have. And that when we stray from that faith, we open ourselves up to violence and to uh, sheer power. But I don't have any confidence that the public will always see things the way I do or that uh, my candidates will always win or the people I don't like will will always uh, lose. If the Democratic Party, which is my party, uh, if the Democratic Party had addressed problems that uh, it avoided addressing, like immigration and border security, we might very well have had a different outcome. The concern of, uh, of uh, coastal elites, uh, uh, people like the four of us, uh, can be alienating and distant from the concern of many Americans. And until the Democratic Party, my party, addresses those questions, uh, maybe we deserve to lose. Although whether we deserve to lose, Donald Trump is really going a long <laughs> way. I, just, I do want to hear what you want to say. I also want to just have another question, which is sort of put, not for, in which you don't have to be reactive. You can sort of be set out a positive agenda. Let's say Democrats do fall short and Republicans end up in control of the House, the Senate, they've got the presidency, they've got a reliable conservative majority on the court, they've got nothing impeding them, there's no obstacle... What would you like to see a second phase of this first Donald Trump term involve? What, what would you like to see be the agenda for Republicans if they do actually win both houses tomorrow? Okay, I will answer that. Yeah. But I will say, I think the fact that, <laughs> that 
Hillary Clinton spoke for herself. I'm sorry. She was a horrible candidate. She was full of scandal. She was full of baggage. She said, stand with her. She didn't even give people a message. She was, uh, I mean, she, she called them a basket full of deplorables, half of the country, the, the flyover country. She never even went to Wisconsin to where the working class uh, live. And in fact, the last time they voted for a Republican was Reagan. These were her husband's base in 92 and 96. And she completely overlooked them because she was paid by special interests. She didn't care, and she was into identity politics. Because I don't interrupt you doesn't mean that I think you're saying things that are factually correct. <laughs> That's fine. She, she, that's fine. She did, I mean, she has broken the law. She just hasn't been um, indicted for that. But she is, I mean, she is a horrible candidate. And if the Democrats cannot understand why they lost 2016, there is no way they're going to understand how to win 2018 or 2020. And if they keep running candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is a socialist, who can only win in Brooklyn, go for it because the Republicans will wipe you every time. Honestly, the Democrats need to look in at themselves. There's a huge leadership void in their party because it's been dominated by the Clintons that have led them down the wrong path recently and the Obamas, and there's nothing there. There's no one there. The best candidate you have in 2020 is Joe Biden, who's over 75. Which will make him the same age as Donald Trump, or younger. And you know what? But... The actual diversity that was during the 2016 Republican presidential primary was fantastic. Where was the diversity on the left? There were a bunch of old hippies who were in their 60s and 70s, honestly. But anyway, talking about immigration in terms is that immigration is an issue that has been kicked down the road by Congress for over 30 years. This is the same debate we've had since Ronald Reagan in the late 80s. This is, I blame Congress for the position that we're in. But Congress is controlled by Republicans, so you just no, need to... No, Congress has ebbed and flowed over the no, last 25, the last 30 years. Just on this one point, on the last two years, Trump was president, Republican majority yeah. in the House, and the, the Democrats Senate. Why didn't, want didn't a deal? you pass the immigration policy you wanted? It did not, it, it is not a cohesive coalition. It is not a cohesive coalition and it is very divided, the issue of immigration. And even on the Republican frankly, side? Even on the Republican okay, side. Okay, so it's not the Democrats' This has fault. not been, but the Democrats play a role. Of course they play a no, role. If you control the House and the Senate and the presidency, people will struggle to understand why he couldn't get through his and the Republican Party's his agenda His vision on of immigration. immigration has always been a divider in the Republican Party. And President Trump, I'm at least proud of the Republicans for be divided over President Trump. Because quite frankly, with Bill Clinton, there was no division by the Democrats, who I found a despicable character and should have been impeached. And was impeached. And he brought, and he brought horrible things to the Oval Office. And he was impeached. Tim, and then we're going to have questions. Yeah. I, I, I want to I emphasize, although in perhaps a slightly different way, a couple of points that Sarah has made. One is when she, when she speaks about the, the bottom 10%, I, I mean, I would make that the bottom 90%. Since, since 1980, the bottom 90% of the American population has had zero increase in income and wealth. Um, it's basically all on the very, very top. I agree that it's very important, one might disagree about the means, but I think it's very important that people see that they have a future, 
that the American dream be real, that children think they can leave their parents' houses. An American between 17 and 35 is more likely to live with his or her parents than anywhere else. We used to be a country where people got out, went to university, moved, lived in a third city. That's ever less true. Um, my view of how one changes that is probably a little bit different than Sarah's, but I think she's right, and I think the party that offers a vision of the future is the one which is going to win. Now, here, I also want, I would like to then take the concept of identity politics and talk about it in a slightly different way. I think Mr. Trump is one of the leading identity politicians in the world. The notion that we're going to make America great again is precisely identity politics. Referring to Mexicans as rapists is identity politics. Referring to African Americans as low IQ people and sons of bitches is identity politics. This is the kind of thing which we can eat up, we can like it, it's the cotton candy of politics, but it's not going to last for very long. And the thing that I worry slightly about for the Republicans is that is precisely identity politics, that we get caught up in feeling that we're number one, that we come first, that we're special, and we lose our ability to identify with others, whether they're people in our own country or whether they're refugees who happen to come from a place where things are much worse than our own country. If we're not able to do that, then we're not going to be able to think about the future. Whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, I think in 2020 it's going to be the candidate who says something besides, again, who's going to win. Well, and I think then your side, then... I, I think Tim, I agree with you on the polarization. Good. I don't want the. I think polarization is hurting our country. But what also has to come from your side is not everybody who voted for Trump is a racist, and you have to stop saying that. Then not you personally, but the Democratic side. And I think that's a huge division. Do you want to respond to this critique from from Sarah that the? Democrats have still not worked out quite why they lost in 2016. And until they do understand that, and this idea that they were disrespecting the electorate, and she mentioned Wisconsin as a sort of example, that to stand in for a wider disrespect for ordinary, regular Americans, and it was a kind of elitist message. Has she got a point on that? Yeah, I think maybe something to that. And, uh, and if she decides to change her parties, we'd love to have her advice. Uh, but what I, I just cringe from isn't the attack on the Democratic Party as uh, elitist or out of touch or uh, flyover a country. It is the repetition which you get from the president of accusations of law-breaking, of criminality. This has no place in our politics. If you believe that Mrs. Clinton broke a law, please cite it. Which law would that be? You say she belongs in prison. Fine. No, I never said she belonged in prison. She broke the law. She broke the law. In my opinion, well, then I guess you get in. Yes, yes. I mean, that's a logical conclusion. You break the law, you go to jail. But, but. um, What's the law she broke? Well, the the classified emails. I mean, she 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 used classified information on her own private server. There is a statute. And she kept the server in her house and. That's not against the law. There well, is a... No, but it was, it's completely, I mean, it's You said not it was State. a crime. And I think one of the reasons why Mrs. Clinton lost was the constant repetition that she had committed a crime. No one could quite say what it was. She couldn't be indicted for it, but there was something wrong there. The Clintons were corrupt in some way. The foundation probably was doing something yeah, illegal. They were. That they is... Were. 
It, it is slander unless you're prepared to. Yes, it is. Well, Calling Wiki someone a criminal, saying they have proof. committed a crime, please let me finish, is slander. And it was repeated over and over, not just by the president, but by his minions all over the, the media and the press. If you say that a crime has been committed, give me the statute and give me the evidence. Until then, I think it is monstrous to take a public servant, someone who spent her life in public service, and say over and over again, oh, yeah, she's a criminal, she belongs in jail, lock her up. Let us at this point widen it out and hear some contributions from you. There are people with microphones roving around. Um, let's hear the second one. Okay, well, that's there, yeah. Um, I think we've got some very strong evidence, actually, of a crime committed by Mr. Trump, and that is the admission of his lawyer, Mr. Cohen, that he and Mr. Trump conspired to and did make a payment of $130,000 to a porn actress in advance of the election for the purpose of in influencing the election, and it worked. And it happened. And we know it did. Why is that not an impeachable offense? And why is that not a crime? So that, that's the, okay, well, we'll come to these questions. Let's hear who's, yeah, if you, thank you, yeah. Um, one of the things that you haven't addressed at all is Trump's inability to deal correctly with the truth. So I'd like to hear the panel's views on the creation of beliefs as truth, the telling of counter-truth as truth, truth is what people think it should be. I'd be interested in your views. Thank you very much. Okay, well, let's... Um, why don't we put to you this question, Sarah, about the, the truth and the... Um, the no, I think it's the Washington Post who've got this team who constantly are checking every statement, and they say, at last count, I think it was on Friday, 4,629 false or misleading statements have been uttered by the president in the 649 days of his presidency <laughs> to that point. And the rate had been seven full statements a day. And during the campaigning for the midterms, it has risen to 30 misleading or full statements every day. Um, when he was asked about this recently, he did say, um, I tell the truth when I can. And, <laughs> and you know, when I, that was the, 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 the word. Do you, I know that you're, you said you would vote for today, but are you able to sort of acknowledge that concern, well, or do you say it's untrue? No. I mean, listen, I didn't vote for him the first time because I thought he was, you know, he's not my type of statesman, right? And so he has this way of kind of like taking a truth or, or a, a, a kernel and then taking it maybe down a different path or expanding on it in a different way. Right. Not all the time. But on some things, he likes to exaggerate, maybe on crowd size, for instance, at his inauguration. But that, to me, to me, I, listen, I, I like what he's doing in the White House. I like, his, I like his policies. I like the people he has around him. I like Jim Mattis. I don't think, I actually think that the um, uh, Washington Post, for instance, is quite unfair to him. Um, I think uh, recently with the, I think the media, especially CNN, has completely doubled down on him. Um, I, with the synagogue shooting, you know, the headline on the, on the front page of the Washington Post was Trump supporter shoots up the synagogue. I'm sorry. That's Where was that the headline? The Washington Post. Are you sure about that? It was, yes. It was one of the days. 
It was either the first or because, second day. Because he came out very quickly that he was an opponent of Trump, so that would be surprising. But we'll, we'll, find, that, find, we'll find out that Washington Post But headline. it was a very leading... Uh, maybe I'm sorry, forgive me. Maybe it was the pipe bomb. Maybe it was the pipe bomb. Right, because the Pittsburgh thing was not there. Um, so, that being said... Um, I mean, CNN has twisted his words. Listen, we could do tit for tat all day here. The president is his own man. He has his own vernacular. But at the end of the day, he hits a nerve with the American people, and he hits on issues that they care about. And quite frankly, the one thing that unites Republicans around President Trump is the fact that the media is biased against him. And, and, but I would also like to answer the question about Michael Cohen. Um, the idea of the, the payment to Stormy Daniels. I think it would be very difficult for them to prove that he didn't make that payment to also protect his family and his wife. And I think that would also, from the news, just being honest, that it just didn't have political implications. Why, why, I'm serious. Why, why, why don't you pick up that point? Because... Um, uh, 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 Philip Bobbitt, because you said before that, the, that you set the bar very high, that it has to be on a par with treason and bribery, and you didn't noticeably uh, offer the Stormy Daniels case as an example of something which might be an impeachable crime. Uh, besides the circumstances of the personal relationship, the key, the key issue, as I understand it, is that it's an undeclared election contribution That's of $130,000. Right. So it's a violation of federal election law. Under, uh, and, and I think if we accept you know, the, the facts of the case. Why is that not an impeachable offence? Well, let me just break this down a little in somewhat smaller bits. Assuming that it is an indictable crime, that it would go to a jury, that a grand jury could indict, and a jury would say, well, we're judging the motivation of the president, and we'll hear him testify, and we'll see. Was he thinking about his family? Was he thinking about the campaign? Was he thinking about both of these things? Juries do this all the time. A president, a sitting president, cannot be indicted. So that's the first point. So that's why he's not going to be prosecuted for that crime, at least until he leaves office. Second, a crime of that kind, while quite significant, uh, election violations is not trivial, isn't the sort of crime that our framers, our ratifiers, the discussions that we've had over these last two centuries about an impeachable offense really goes to. It is significant in the criminal context and we want our elections to give us confidence in democracy. I, I, I'm not trying to minimize that. But when you go to an impeachable offense, you're really talking about something that undermines the very foundations of the democracy, something that you want to be willing to overturn a national election for. So it has to be a constitutional crime. And, and I, don't, I, I, I see your point. I think it's serious. But I wouldn't have thought that that meets that very high bar. And so, for example, just to clarify where you're coming from on this, Bill Clinton lying under oath in the, in the Paulie Jones deposition and lying about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky, for you that would not have cleared that bar, or no. would it? No, Because not, the president must be uphold, no. uh, truthful. Yeah, not, not even close. Take the example, I don't know if this name means anything to in this room, lying. of... Of... Yes? No, go please. No, you're saying that Bill Clinton was yeah, lying. Yeah, he was lying. You know, right. you have but a problem if, with li- under oath. So, I mean. so, so, if, so in that case then, if Donald Trump, one of these 4,629 was under oath, 
you would be first in the queue to say he should be impeached. You would have no hesitation. I do not. I do not. I, I if do lying not, is the no, standard. L- lying under oath is the, as, yes. is impeachable. Absolutely. So if there's proof of Donald Trump ever having done that, that would be impeachable. Well, well yes. Yeah. Get, okay. You no, know, I, no, I have standards for my president. Yeah. Because, I, I, I mean, I think going I back through some that. of his court appearances in the past, there may be questions well, about he was, whether he was, he was truthful under oath. Thank you. Let's pass the microphone to the lady here. Yeah. Yes, hi. Um, how can Democrats honestly say that they're standing up for free speech and unity of a country when you have the leadership using phrases like harass them, push them, kick them while they're down, let's not be civil until after the election. And then when you have conservative speakers going to university campuses and you have groups that are being violent and absolutely shutting down conservative speakers, that is really prohibiting free speech. Okay. You've got it and then we'll Um, come to you. I would like to ask Mr. Bobbitt, who seems to hold uh, Mrs. Clinton in very high esteem, what he thinks about how she won the nomination uh, of her party during the election. Okay, and then the lady behind, and then that will really be it for this session of questions. Yeah. Lots of retrospective questions about 2016 rather than 2018, but that may Thank be telling. Thank you so much, yeah. um, everyone, for speaking. This question is for Professor Snyder. Um, I'm from Texas, and voter suppression laws are you know, very strong there. So I think just practically I'd like to hear from you about what we can do as Americans to work against them. Philip Bobbitt, first of all. On, I'm going to put together, because these are going to be our closing round of contributions from all of you, uh, several attacks on uh, Secretary Clinton, how she won the nomination against Bernie Sanders, uh, the notion that she was a sort of corporate uh, property, uh, and then lastly, uh, how can Democrats occupy this sort of high ground when in the campaign uh, they've been saying things like kick Republicans when they're down, I think that was a reference to Eric Holder, when they go low you should kick them which is slightly different from saying when they're down. Um, But your response to Democrat conduct in the campaign, and if you want to, a defense of Hillary Clinton. All right. Well, um, let me start with the free speech point. Like uh, many Americans, uh, like many constitutional law professors, I am an absolutist. Uh, I don't like a lot of what I hear, uh, but I, uh, I would never shout someone down. And I would never approve of having someone uh, shouted down. I teach at a university. I would be ashamed of my students if they kept someone, no matter how loathsome. Uh, the, the, the limiting example always is, well, would you have allowed Hitler to come to Columbia? You bet I would have. If we'd exposed him to, uh, to Americans, if they'd known what we were dealing with in the 1930s, we might have intervened long before we did. I'm not afraid of... Uh, free speech, even when I don't care for its tone and, uh, uh, and uh, its taste. And as far as incivility goes, the idea of taking uh, civil servants, uh, political people, and hounding them out of restaurants or, or abusing them in public spaces is loathsome. Uh, uh, now, I, I, I must say, I think that sometimes uh, one party goads the other, and I don't know who started this dispute, but uh, there seems to be an ugly dynamic, a sort of a race to the bottom here, but... Uh, I, I, don't, uh, I don't approve of it, I deplore it. I would like to hear a discussion of 
uh, of policy, rather than this constantly demeaning uh, remarks, including accusations of uh, criminal behaviour. Sorry to rush you, because no, time is so... We're, we're, we're hitting the, the, the deadline, as it were. Um, closing remarks and responses from you, I, 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 Sarah Elliott. One, one thing I particularly would like to hear from you was a response to this idea that actually, because although we have talked about individual races and candidates, this has been, the very fact we're talking about Trump shows this is a referendum on Trump, like it or not. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't, but this is. Um, I do want to talk on voter, uh, the, the motivation of voters overseas now getting very involved, and actually nationwide, really. Um, I, I think that the United States is, is not in a healthy place uh, culturally, and I think the polarization is very detrimental to, um, to us as a country, uh, to our families, to our communities. Uh, I would like to think that um, this conversation is part of the, maybe um, a healing process or a step forward to show how it's done, uh, to have civil discussion, civil discourse. I'm quite um, disturbed by what we, I've seen um, with Antifa. Um, and Black Lives Matter, and I've also been very disturbed by seeing um, white nationalists as well, which I wholeheartedly condemn. Um, and quite frankly, I've been a Republican my entire life, and I did not know they, they existed, honestly. And I know that some of you probably have a perception that's different than that, but that is my experience. Just on that, when, um, when the president said in Charlottesville there were yes, very fine I, people I on both sides. Like, I did not like that. Okay. I did not like that. Um, and our organization came out firmly. I will tell you, um, I did not vote for the president because I couldn't stand behind everything he said and his manner and his demeanor. And quite frankly, I thought he was just a liberal New Yorker like Hillary uh, because he's from New York and a liberal. But, um, but he's actually been governing um, much more in the style of Reagan and he cares about the issues that I care about. And what I like is that he has a positive message for the country. He has a vision for the country, for one. And he's actually helping people in the Midwest. And so my policy is listen to 50% of what he says and watch what he's doing. I really have liked what he's done on the international stage um, and in, relate, in relation to Iran and Israel and North Korea and in the Middle East. The tax cuts are amazing, and I'm sorry, but Tim, I think you're wrong. I think we're going to see this um, economy grow past 2020, um, and especially, you know, if there is a Democratic House and Senate, those tax cuts are going to be rescinded, and then, yes, we will not see it any longer, uh, this growth. But I will wrap this up. Um, but I, I think um, that this is a – I hope that our country can be more bipartisan and find things more have in common and stop throwing words at each other and nastiness. Um, and so I, I, you know, I put my olive branch out there to work with you guys, and I hope that as a country and as a community we can look at each other differently and not put each other in boxes. And also I want a healthy democracy, and I applaud your concern and care as well and your research and your writing to help our democracy. Um, and I want to know why the FBI went after an American citizen, and that should be a concern of everyone's as well. All right, let's give you the um, closing remarks from you, uh, Tim Snyder, and I'd like you to pick up two questions that came up. One, as briefly if you, as, possibly, as possible, if you can, which was what can be done about voter suppression. But the second one, I thought, was the important closing thought from the gentleman here who asked about how this compares to other periods in history. What period is this like, um, he asked, and I thought that would be a good closing point. 
Okay, good. I'll, I'll, treat, I'll treat all that together as, as best I can. I think a, a very important policy change and something which links back to history has to do with the earlier question of factuality. Factuality is very important, and factuality relates to this question about the First Amendment. The purpose of the First Amendment was for citizens to be able to encounter themselves in the public sphere recognize where they agreed and disagreed. But one can only have sensible discussions about policy on the, ba- on the basis of facts, and beyond that, on the basis of an agreement that there is such a thing as a fact. Um, that the West and America are moving... Okay, it's a, it's a fact that people applauded that statement, I'm glad. Um, the, the fact that the United States and others are moving away from this view concerns me. One of the most effective parts of the Russian intervention was precisely to encourage Americans on both the right and the left for various reasons towards the view that who knows, law's a joke, democracy's a joke, you just have your opinion, I have my opinion, right? On the right and on the left, we're vulnerable to that. But as soon as we accept that there are no facts we will not recognize each other as citizens because if all we have are opinions and identities and there's no factuality for us to talk about, we can't have discussions and, this is where it gets important, we can't make policy. There's a reason why there's such a policy drought and the fundamental reason is that if we govern from factlessness, which has been Mr. Trump's great contribution, this idea that what's important is what makes us feel good, which is nice, you know, it's nice, but the next morning or the next decade or the next generation or the next century, you have a hangover from getting rid of the factuality. This leads me to history, and this leads me back to where things get very serious. It is incredibly important when reacting to globalization, moving to your question, sir, Um, that one reacts to globalization as a series of challenges which the state can address or not, as opposed to reacting to globalization by putting a face on it, whether that's a Jewish face and saying that financiers like George Soros are really behind opposition, are really behind civil rights, are really behind migrants, which is a trend that starts in Russia gets picked up in Hungary and Poland and unfortunately has come to the United States, whether it's a Jewish face on globalization or whether it's a dark face on globalization. One way you can respond to globalization is by putting a face on it. That's one way that things went, as you know, in the 20s and 30s. We are also tempted by that as we face the challenges of globalization. Do we say that we're, do we whine? Do we say it's this conspiracy? Do we say it's those migrants? Or do we have the strength, the constitution, the intelligence, and the courage to say globalization faces challenges, and going back to your point about local problems, and we need to make policy that addresses those problems. The point about democracy also, democracy, Texas, voter suppression, also feeds into the question about history. In the 20s and 30s, a number of the people who were against democracy which included some big business lobbies and other kinds of lobbies, which included radicals on the right and on the left, but a number of people who were against democracy thought they knew what would happen when democracy went away. And they turned out to be wrong. This is one of the reasons why I, as a rather... I'm not a conservative person, but I'm a conservative historian. Why I, as a conservative historian, worry when people push up against democracy by allowing people to have more than one vote when they have more money, by suppressing the votes of others. People think they know what's going to come next 
but we don't. When we move away from democracy, especially in a situation where factuality is itself in question, we don't know what's going to come next. But I will say with a certain amount of confidence that it will be surprising, and it will be surprisingly bad. Thank you. Um, we have slightly overshot on time, so it remains for me to say, if you have uh, a vote, maybe you've already cast it, but otherwise I was going to say go vote. But mainly, I'm sure you're all going to be watching the elections very closely, and you're just going to want to join me in thanking Tim Snyder, Susan Elliott, and Philip Bobbitt. <laughs>